We have begun a series together in which we're looking through the Gospel of John. You may have noticed the little subtitle there, That You May Believe. We noticed last Sunday that John ended his Gospel by saying, I have told you these things that you may believe that Jesus is God. And we, uh, we're looking at the gospel from that point of view. Why did John write the book? He wrote it so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And we noticed that throughout the book, there is no noun form of that word belief. There, throughout his gospel, he never says, here is a set of thoughts and ideas that I want you to accept, that I want you to understand. He always uses the verb believe. In other words, he calls us to thrust our lives onto Jesus, to trust him with everything we are, to believe in the verb form is to completely trust. And that is John's goal for us as we look through his gospel. Well, last week we started in John chapter 1. We started at verse 1. And we covered what is often called the prologue. It's kind of an introduction to the gospel. And in that powerful introduction, John describes who Jesus is and helps us understand that Jesus is God that he is part of the Trinity. When he says the Word was God, then the Word was with God. He is divine. He is part of the Trinity. He was actively involved in creation. He became, he put on flesh so that he could live in this world among us, showing us what real life is and then dying for us and coming back to life again. Well, that is the first 18 verses, give or take, of John chapter 1. The remaining part of that chapter, we, uh, we get to see John the baptizer. And you'll remember that in the, in the prologue, there's a quick introduction to John the baptizer, but we don't really see much of him. The rest of chapter 1 is John the baptizer's baptizing people, Jesus comes by, he says, hey, all of you who are following me, here is the Lamb of God, follow him now. I've been here to show you him, and now he is here. And sure enough, there are specific individual disciples of John the baptizer who leave John and start to follow Jesus. So as we get to the end of chapter 1, Jesus has already about six disciples who are now following him. And we come to chapter 2 this morning. This morning I want to do something a little bit different in chapter 2 than is, um, is, is the norm for us. Usually when I present a message... I have an outline. I share with you the specific points. Number one is this, number two is that, number three is something else. This morning, I really want us to just dive into the story and let the narrative carry us. So 
I won't be saying number one, number two, no, that doesn't mean the sermon is pointless. But I want to, I'm sorry, but I want us to just, let's walk together verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and let the narrative guide us through the experience, okay? We're going to start in chapter 2 at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Believe it or not, there's a whole lot already in that first verse. So let's look at it carefully. Third day, don't get hung up on that. I, I was surprised how much time and how much ink theologians use arguing over the understanding of third day. The only thing it means is three days after the last thing I told you about. So John ends chapter 1 with the introduction of Nathaniel, another disciple who's going to follow Jesus. And three days after Nathaniel starts to follow Jesus, there is a wedding at Cana. Now, Cana is a little bit of a journey from where they were, but it's not far from where Jesus grew up. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and Cana is just a few miles away. Nazareth was a very small town, and Cana was even smaller. You might really think of the relationship of the two towns like West and Abbott. And that would explain why a family from Nazareth is going to a wedding in Cana. How many of you West people have friends or family in Abbott? How many of you would go to Abbott for a friend or family wedding? Obviously. That's how Jesus winds up at a wedding in Cana. Friends and family knew each other. They were neighboring towns separated by less than 10 miles. The mother of Jesus was there. Now notice that because it's interesting that it's, the two things are interesting. One, we never hear Mary's name in the Gospel of John. She is the mother of Jesus. Secondly, it's interesting that she, it says that she was there. The reason that's interesting is verse 2 says Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Jesus and his disciples were invited, but Mary was there. I think that's significant because Mary was most likely there to help run things. I almost see her as the unofficial caterer. You know, in big weddings, you hire a caterer. But then the bride's mom has friends who kind of oversee how the catering's going. Right? Yes. I think Mary is there as a friend of the family. I think, and I'm going to show you a couple of reasons why, I think she was not just invited, she was there because she was there to help handle things, to make sure everything ran smoothly for their friends. Verse 2 again, Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. 
is it, it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus was invited to a wedding and he went. The reason I find that interesting is because we just got to know John the baptizer. And John the baptizer would never be seen in a social setting. I told you, he was one weird dude. His job in life, his calling, his purpose for being, was to be a voice crying in the wilderness. His whole existence was to be a weird loner. John, then, in comparison to Jesus, John is out in the wilderness crying, someone's coming. Jesus goes directly to the people saying, I'm here. And that was Jesus' ministry throughout his ministry. He was connecting to people. He wasn't hiding. He wasn't a recluse. He never had the attitude, since the world is evil, since the world is sinful, I'm going to separate myself from the world and insulate myself. He never had that point of view. Jesus was always interacting, loving. He was always social, if you want to use that word. Matter of fact, that got him in trouble a couple of times, remember? Where folks would look at him and say, why are you hanging out with them? Jesus was a personal person. What that means for us this morning is those of us who have seen Jesus as a great historical figure way off somewhere have completely misunderstood who he was and who he is. He is a personal, compassionate Jesus. He knows you. And even though he knows you, he loves you. Something else that catches my attention to the fact that he was invited to a wedding to which he attended, or at which he attended. It's interesting that he was invited to the wedding. So many times I see young couples getting married. And they do what we did. My, when Lisa and I got married 34 years ago, huh? we met with the pastor before the wedding. The pastor said, I think it'd be a great idea for you to in invite Jesus to your wedding. That is so cool. Jesus, we want you in our wedding. We want you to show up on our day. Countless couples have done that. Invite Jesus to your wedding. But the problem is I've seen it so many times where that very same couple says goodbye to their guests and they send their guests on their way and Jesus with them. It's not enough just to invite him to the wedding. We invite him into our lives and he becomes Lord over the marriage. But here is the first example. Jesus is invited to a wedding and he shows up. And in God's infinite wisdom and his perfection, God chooses this to be the event in which Jesus would begin his public ministry. 
The next 11 chapters of the book of John carry us through Jesus' public ministry. And this is where it begins, at a wedding. I think that says something about the importance that God places on marriage. He could have chosen any event in which to introduce the Messiah's earthly ministry. He chose a wedding. So Jesus and his disciples are invited to the wedding. Now understand as well that the wedding in that day was very different than the wedding in our day. Back in Jesus' time, if a couple wanted to get married, it began with a process called a betrothal. What that meant was that the two dads would get together and decide if this was going to happen or not. If the dads decided this was going to happen, then they would enter into a contract, a legally binding contract, so that if one of the two involved in the relationship wanted to end that relationship, it actually required a divorce, even though they were not really married. That betrothal period would take anywhere from two months to a year. During that time, the young man would be preparing the house in which they would live. Quite often that house was next to his family home, but he was preparing the house, he was getting ready. And at the end of that time, when he had everything ready, then it was time for the wedding. And the wedding would begin when he and his buddies would leave his house, walk through the streets with, with torches and making noise and celebrating and have a grand parade to the house of the bride. They would pick up the bride and take her back to the groom's house where the wedding would begin and would last for a week. The celebration would go on day and night for, give or take, seven days. A grand celebration. And so in verse 3, we, we begin to see why this is such an issue. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. The wine ran out. There was this grand crowd, and they're partying, and they're having a good time, and they're celebrating. And the wine ran out. So Mary, who apparently had some, some, was in charge of this in some way, one of the reasons we know that is most of the people at the wedding didn't know the wine was running out. But Mary knew. Why? Because she's the friend in charge. And so she comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Now, it's not surprising that she would come to Jesus with that. We believe that her husband Joseph died somewhere in the past. We see Joseph when Jesus is age 12, and we don't see him again. There's no mention of Joseph after Jesus at age 12. So we believe he died somewhere along the way. If we are correct in that very 
plausible assumption, if we're, if we're correct in that, then Mary would have turned to Jesus to help solve family problems and issues and to help her deal with things. He being the firstborn of the family. So here's a problem. She does what she always does. She goes to the one that she talks to when there are problems. Jesus, they're running out of wine. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, if you and I, growing up in the South, ever spoke to Mama that way, when we woke up in a couple of days, we'd regret it. Understand different culture, different time, and different language. We've got to put all of that together. When he says woman, it did not sound to her ears the way it does to ours. Woman. What is that to me? What she heard was more like, yes, ma'am, but what can I do? Woman was not... And uh, uh, being impolite. It was, ma'am. So what he's doing is he's saying, there's a separation now. There's not the intimacy of mom, but there is that respect of ma'am. And what he's saying is, my public ministry is beginning... From now on, I am about my father's business. Now, mom, I'm not just here for you. He was telling her that something is changing. Reminiscent of that time when he was 12, they, caught, they saw him when he had, he had delayed in the temple and they moved on, right? They came back and found him. And he said, where do you think I'd be? I'm about my father's business. It's what he's telling her now. Mom, it's time for me to be about my father's business. I can't jump every time you need me. My priorities are changing. I'm beginning my ministry. I am here to do all that God calls me to do. So, ma'am, what does that problem have to do with me? It doesn't fit my father's plan how do we know that because he says my hour has not yet come you see that in the next phrase you'll see that phrase throughout the book of john a reference to his hour very significant because jesus is staying on god's timeline from the moment his, his really from the moment of his birth but we'll we'll say for sake of of uh discussion at the moment of the beginning of his public ministry, he stays on God's timeline throughout. You'll see him say five or six times throughout the gospel, my hour has not come, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. It's not yet time to reveal to everyone who I am as Messiah. 
Instead, he reveals to a few at specific moments until he finally says, toward the end of the gospel, he does finally say, my hour has come. And everything changes. So at this point, he is saying to Mary, ma'am, that doesn't really apply to me because I am about my father's business now and my hour has not yet come. In verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, when, I have almost always read that as, as her kind of knowing better than Jesus. Jesus says, I can't do anything about that. That's not my time yet. And she says, oh yeah, well, I'll make sure it happens. But I don't think that's the case at all. I think instead, Mary has understood the, the message from Jesus. He, is, he will be from now on about his father's business. And so she doesn't say, Jesus, do a miracle. I don't think she ever really necessarily had a miracle in mind. She just went to the man who always helped solve problems. Perhaps he could go and run and buy some. Perhaps he knew somebody who could help. I don't know. He always went to the one who could help. She always went to the one who could help. And so she goes to Jesus. He says, my time's not here yet, Mom. And so she goes to the servants then. These servants, this is the word for deacon, by the way. Not the word for slave, but the word for deacon. Servant. Those who have chosen to help. And she goes to them, which again makes me think she's in charge. Because she's talking to the servants and telling them what to do. She says to them, do whatever he says. I don't think she's setting him up. I think instead she knows They probably don't know who this stranger is. So if he does ask them to help him solve this problem, they're not going to know that they have to do what he says. So the lady in charge says, pay attention to him if he asks you to do something. And then Jesus steps forward. And verse 6, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These great big stone jars are there full of water. And this is for purification, not washing your hands before a meal like you and I think of it. They didn't know anything about germs and viruses and such. This was a ritual. This was a way to demonstrate their faith in God by obeying His laws The purification laws said you wash before you eat. And so they had to have a lot of water because they got a lot of people there for seven days. I thought a few hours was a long time for a wedding. (laughs) For seven days. And so they got to have a lot of water. They got six big buckets. And those buckets each hold 20, 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, verse 7, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. Now, my guess is there was already water in some of them, and they topped them off, so now all of the jars are filled to the brim. 
That's important because it shows us that nobody was able to sneak wine into the jars or anything like that. There wasn't any sleight of hand. The jars were to the brim of water. So once the jars are completely filled of water, he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. They drew some water out and took it to the guy who's kind of like the masters of ceremonies. He's kind of running things. The wedding coordinator. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Now that speaks to us of one of the... One of the themes throughout the book, and one of the reasons that Jesus has handled everything the way he has thus far, the master of ceremonies did not know what had happened, where the wine came from, but the servants did. Those who were closest to him knew what Jesus was doing. The rest of the people didn't know. That is what we call the messianic secret. For a long time, Jesus told his disciples he was Messiah. But that was kept a secret from everyone else until his hour had come, until the right time was there. In this case, the master of ceremonies didn't know where the wine came from, but the servants did. There are times in your life when Jesus is going to do something for you when he's going to do a miracle in your mind or in your heart or in your body. And the rest of the world might not understand it. They might not know where that miracle came from, but you do. The servants knew. They knew that Jesus had told them to fill the buckets full of water, and when they went to get water, it was wine that came out. They knew that when they got that wine, that something had happened, that the, the one who had spoken the worlds into existence said, there's going to be wine, and there was wine. Jesus is the Creator, and from nothing He created the worlds, and from nothing He created wine. No time for grapes to grow, no time for anything to ferment. He grew, He spoke he created the wine. Those who were closest to him knew it. So at the end of nine, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Why is that? It makes sense, doesn't it? You're going to feed the, you're going to serve the good wine first so people will drink a lot of it because it tastes good. And once they drink a lot of it because it tastes good, their taste buds are going to get drunk. And once their taste buds are drunk, they can't tell when you start serving the cheap stuff. So that's the way it was done. And the guy in charge says to the bridegroom, now that's interesting. He pulls the bridegroom over and he gives the bridegroom credit for this change. Why does, the bride, why does the groom get credit for that? It's assumed that the groom was in charge of this whole thing. 
You know why? Because back then, the groom's family paid for everything. Amen. It's the way it was supposed to be done. It's biblical. <laughs> so the groom's family had paid for everything. By the way, that's why Jesus helped. Because when things went wrong at the wedding, that very well could have been a breach of contract. They could have been sued by the other family. And the entire community would have looked down on this groom and his family. Jesus, in his compassion, did something to help, and he created the wine. The master of the feast calls the groom over and says, Dude, this is good stuff. You did it backwards. Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The first of his miracles. You have heard stories of Jesus as a boy doing certain miracles and creating birds from clay. And that's all superstition. Scripture tells us, John chapter 2, this was the first of his signs, his miracles. John uses a word that means sign because Jesus didn't do the miracles to wow everybody. His purpose in doing miracles was to be a sign to his disciples, to show them they could believe, they could trust in him. And this is the first. Through the gospel, we're going to see six or seven other signs, specific miracles used to demonstrate he was who he said he was. And the result was that people believed and he was glorified. Our Lord Jesus Christ left his throne in glory and the Word became flesh. And as he dwelt among us, he connected to people. We have a personal Savior. He loves you as a person. He is able to meet whatever your need. Doesn't mean He is at your beck and call, but He is able, powerful, to meet your every need. And when He does, the ultimate result is that He receives glory. We believe he receives glory. That's why he reveals who he is to us through the miracles. And we are grateful when he does so.